Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. Today's episode, Cass and Bo. When I sat down to write this episode, I had intended it to be about Theodoric's foreign relations and how he inserted himself into the role of arbiter and primus inter pares among the post-Roman successor kingdoms. I was going to start that off by talking about sources, so I started writing about sources, and then a thousand words later I realized I was still writing about sources, or more accurately, one of the authors of those sources. After a moment of panic that I was not following the assignment and I would have to start all over again, I remembered I gave myself the assignment, and I could change it if I wanted. So, we'll talk about foreign relations next time. This time, we'll talk about two of the bright stars of Theodoric the Great's court, Cassiodorus and Boethius. Both were of noble Roman birth, both rose to prominence at an impressively young age, and both produced writings that would be influential for a long, long time into the future. Cassiodorus, for a number of historical and theological writings, including his History of the Goths. Boethius, for the Consolation of Philosophy, which bridges the gap between the classical and medieval worldviews. Their biographies give us a window into the workings of the upper reaches of Theodoric's court, as well as a welcome whiff of personality. So with your permission, or indeed without it, I shall begin. And I shall begin with Cassiodorus, known as Cassie to his friends at the bar, and Flavius Magnus Aurelius Cassiodorus Senator to people about to ask him for money. Last time when I introduced Theodoric's Ostrogothic kingdom of Italy, I painted a relatively rosy picture. After the hideous bloodletting that removed Odoacer's supporters and ended the war, Italy enjoyed a much-needed period of peace and stability that it hadn't seen in nearly a century. If that was your impression, I am pleased to say that it's pretty much true. Internally, Theodoric's Italy functioned with a minimum of riot, rebellion, or general disorder. Much of the credit for that has to be given to the people Theodoric chose to run the place for him. Theodoric's vision was of a double kingdom, with a Roman population working the land, paying the taxes, and administering the country, and a Gothic population alongside, fighting the wars and protecting the people. In this society, the Roman upper and middle classes found a natural home, which was comfortable and familiar. No matter what they may have thought about the Gothic overlord, they could fulfill their God-given place in society by serving the state and ensuring its functions and mores remained Roman. We've already talked about Liberius, who had ably administered the Gothic settlement, and he continued to serve as Praetorian prefect for seven years. Cassiodorus was born into a family of similar rank to Liberius, sometime between 485 and 490, at Squillace, which is a town way down in the toe of Italy. His family was old and his family was rich, and had remained so through all the chaos we've been through together. Cassiodorus's father, also named Cassiodorus, had held office under Odoacer, and around the year 500 was tapped by Theodoric to take the newly opened post as Praetorian prefect. Nepotism gets a bad rap these days, but that's a pretty modern attitude. In ancient and medieval times, it was just the way things worked. 
As soon as his son was old enough, the elder Cassiodorus appointed him as a concilianus. Think of that job as the kind of ancient paralegal, an assistant to help his father untangle thorny legal questions brought before the prefect. It was a good and pretty traditional start for a young man who couldn't have been more than 20 years old at the time. He would have been on track for a career in public service, and a pretty distinguished one at that, probably. But a stroke of luck put him on the high-speed rail to the very top. An opportunity arose for the younger Cassiodorus to deliver a speech in praise of Theodoric before an assembly of notable citizens. These panegyrics, many of which survive, are an important source for historians. In some cases, they're the only record of military accomplishments or public works. And in 507, Cassiodorus's speech so impressed the king that he was immediately appointed as quaestor, one of the top dozen or so officials in the kingdom. If Concilianus was a paralegal, then Caester is a press secretary, combined with chancery duties. Cassiodorus was responsible for writing and delivering speeches on behalf of Theodoric to the Senate, handling correspondence, and clothing new laws in the expected Latin forms and flourishes. Cassiodorus had a particular flair for flourishes, and it sometimes led to a certain long-winded smugness that can get pretty tiresome if you let it. But it was what was expected from the high-born Roman at the time. These communication services were especially valuable to Theodoric because, as far as we can tell, Theodoric didn't speak to the Senate directly. One source, called the anonymous Valicianus, claims that he was completely illiterate and used a stencil for his signature. Personally, I cannot believe that a man educated for ten years in the noble houses of Constantinople wouldn't be able to read and write in Greek. Theodoric would have had to have been at least bilingual, Gothic and Greek. My suspicion is that he could speak Latin too, but since he would have come to it relatively late in life, he never was comfortable enough to use it to address the Senate, and probably didn't write it very well either. From there, some anti-barbarian bias kicks in in the sources to expand that out to totally illiterate. I don't buy the stencil thing at all either, by the way. How hard would it have been to learn a few Latin letters? Anyway, all of that is beside the point. As quaestor, Cassiodorus became King Theodoric's official mouthpiece. Obviously, that work brought him into contact with the very highest court circles, both Gothic and Roman. It also kept him very busy. He certainly would have had a cadre of secretaries and scribes to assist him, and probably dictated quite a bit, but still. His was a wide and potentially overwhelming remit. He served as quaestor until 511, and then took a break for a stint in private life. In 514, though, he was brought back into government with the great honor of the consulship, after which he was granted the highest possible civilian rank of patrician and appointed Magister Officiorum, Master of Offices, one of the two or three highest civilian posts. And somewhere in there, he found time to turn 30. Along with his official duties, he produced a history of the Romans, followed by the history of the Goths that I keep going on about. That's the one that Jordanes summarized and preserved for us, though in much abridged and mangled form. The Gothic history was probably composed by commission from Theodoric, for political reasons that I'll talk about more in the next episode. One quick digression about it, though. People who know their Latin prose can be quite snippy about late antiquity and the early Middle Ages. 
I'm in no position to judge. My Latin runs out at Romani's Aunt Domus, but I can confirm that in translation, Cassiodorus can be incredibly overinflated and cumbersome, and apparently Jordani's is worse. Cassiodorus carried on as Magister Officiorum until under Theodoric's successors, Amalsuentha and Athalaric, and worked in some capacity for the later Ostrogothic king Vitigus. I'm sorry for the plot spoiler, but eventually the Ostrogothic kingdom would fall to the Byzantines, and then Cassiodorus's public employment came to an end. He spent some years in Constantinople and then retired back to his hometown, where he founded a monastery and began an earnest contemplation of the Lord and an equally earnest advocacy for education. He also wrote several treatises on the Psalms and the Letters of the Apostles, which found their way in fragmentary form into other works. He died in or around 583, at an impressive age between 90 and 94. For us, the most important of his works, and the one which has survived most completely, is the collection of diplomatic and administrative letters from his long career. Known as the Variae, which just refers to various letters, he compiled it at the very end of his tenure, as it was becoming obvious that the wheels had come off of the Ostrogothic kingdom and that the conquest was inevitable. It's not too difficult to imagine that the Byzantine invaders might have some very hard questions for Romans who had collaborated with the barbarian regime, conveniently forgetting, of course, that Theodoric had gone to Italy in the first place with Zeno's blessing. Historian Peter Heather suggests that we need to look at the Variae in this context, and I'm with him on this. Cassiodorus is very careful and deliberate in the letters he selected for inclusion in his memoir. He consistently presents Theodoric and his successors as custodians of Romanitas, and himself as their guide, maintaining the old Roman civilitas and preventing it from being overwhelmed by barbarian rules. It is, in other words, an early and elaborate example of CYA. Even if we don't accept that the Verrier were compiled in fear, then it is still certainly a political memoir. And if you think that political memoirs contain nothing but truth, justice, and light, then you hang on to that for as long as you can, you pure thing. Come back to us when you've gotten just a tiny bit more cynical. Not that that keeps the Verrier from being a very valuable source, and at times an amusing window into the waters in which Cassiodorus swam. So, like, what kind of thing, I can hear you ask me in moderate frustration, is included in these variae already? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's start with this one as an example. It is a letter from the king to the Senate of Rome. Quote, Do not, senators, be too severe in marking every idle word which the mob may utter amidst the general rejoicing. If there is any insult which requires notice, bring it before the prefect of the city, far better course than taking the law into your own hands. End quote. Apparently the city elite were taking exception to some of the heckling they were experiencing at the races. This letter in particular is weakened a bit by Cassiodorus adding some of those unnecessary intellectual flourishes, which he got more guilty of the closer his audience was to his rank. In this case it was, men in old times always used to fight with their fists, when, whence the word pugna, which by the way is Latin for fight and comes from pugnus, fist. Afterwards, iron was introduced by King Bellus, and hence came bellum, Latin for war, which none of which is terribly pertinent or helpful, and also in the case of war, wrong. Anyway, 
Another letter at the same time was addressed to the Roman people. Quote, the circus on which the king spends so much money is meant for the public delight, not to stir up wrath. Instead of uttering howls and insults like other nations, let them tune their voice so that their applause shall sound like some vast organ, and even the most brutish of creation delights to hear it. Anyone uttering outrageous reproaches against any senator will be dealt with by the prefect of the city. End quote. And finally, to complete the set, the letter that was sent to the prefect of the city, named Agapetus. Quote, the ruler of the city ought to keep the peace, and so justify my choice of him. Ooh, snap. Your highest praise would be a quiet people. We have issued our oracles to the Senate and to the people that the custom of insulting persons in the circus be put under some restraint. On the other hand, any senator who shall be provoked to kill a freeborn person shall pay a fine. The games are meant to make people happy, not stir them up to deadly rage. Hilladius, a pantomime performer, a clown, basically, is to go forth and afford the people pleasure, and he is to receive his monthly allowance with the other actors of the green faction. End quote. It gives some color, doesn't it? Uh, no pun intended. The rebuke of the senators for being grumpy old farts. The reminder to the crowd that the circus is a privilege and not a right, and could we all use our indoor voices, please? And the reminder to Agapetus that he needs to keep his people in check, with that mild threat to his job at the beginning. But Cassiodorus has a larger point in including these three letters. He is trying to demonstrate Theodoric's, and his own, commitment to public order, the highest function of government in Roman worldview, while also maintaining fairness. The senators are to settle down and not be so quick to offense. The mob is also to settle down and quit being so obnoxious, and the city prefect is ordered to make sure that everybody settles down and that the senators that do go a little overboard are punished. I know, it's just a fine, but come on, you can't expect to put rich people in jail, especially for little things like killing peasants. Good thing that's changed. And the hiring of the pantomimist as an added sop to the hoi polloi is a nice touch as well, I think. That's not quite the end of the story, as there is one more letter to Agapetus. Quote, Our serenity is not going to change the arrangements which we have made for the public good. We told our agents to choose the most fitting person they could find to be the pantomimist for the Greens, and they have done so, and he will have his monthly allowance, and let there be peace. End quote. We don't know what the objection was to Hilladius, but apparently Agapetus was refusing to pay him, and Theodoric had to remind him who was boss. I find it amusing, anyway. Though I actually doubt whether Theodoric himself got involved at this specific level. Seems to me exactly the kind of thing a good subordinate keeps off his boss's desk. I suspect we are hearing Cassiodorus himself dealing with the problems of overexcited circus goers. Another letter which I find funny, also in a the more things change the more they stay the same kind of way, is this one, addressed to all the Goths and Romans. Most worthy of royal attention is the rebuilding of ancient cities, an adornment in time of peace, a precaution of war. Therefore, if anyone has in their fields stones suitable for the building of walls, let him cheerfully produce them. Even though he shall be paid a low rate, he will have his reward as a member of the community and will benefit thereby. End quote. Government, huh? 
I could go through these for the whole episode, and they will take up some more space next time as we talk about the diplomatic stuff. But for now, just as a matter of interest, I'll have one more. Quote, The liberality of the prince must be kept firm and unshaken by the arts of malignant men. Therefore, any gift which shall be proved to have been given according to our orders by the patrician Liberius to you or your mother in writing shall remain in full force, and you need not fear its being questioned. End quote. This letter is addressed to someone named Romulus. It is possible, and in my mind probable, that this is Romulus Augustulus, the deposed emperor. He seems to have been made anxious by the change in leadership as Liberius ex exited his post and has written to make sure that his stipend will keep coming. This letter, which can't have been written any later than 511, is the last possible reference to the unfortunate boy that surrendered to Odoacer all those years ago. As I think I said at the time, he would have been in his late 40s by now, living still in comfortable obscurity near Naples. I just thought it was worth mentioning. Such a fate would have been deeply attractive to the second of our two subjects, Boethius, different as it was from his own. Ancius Manlius Severinus Boethius was from stock just as noble and familiar with proper table settings as Cassiodorus. Of similar age to Cassiodorus, maybe a few years older, he lost his father at an early age and was adopted by another noble named Symmachus. Boethius cemented his association with Symmachus later on by marrying his foster father's daughter, proving that the Roman tradition of marriages that seem vaguely icky to us today remains strong. Boethius learned to speak and write Greek with great skill, which was becoming less and less common in the West, and he spent his early career translating the Greek classics into Latin, notably Plato and Aristotle. For a long time afterwards, these were the only transcriptions of these works that were available in the West. He entered royal service, and like Cassiodorus, he rose quickly. Theodoric seemed to have been a man who recognized talent and had little patience for rules of seniority or anything like that. Boethius was a senator by 25 and was named consul in 510, four years before Cassiodorus. He appears actually occasionally in the Verrier, given odd jobs that hint at a reputation for good taste and moral uprightness. He is tasked with sourcing a water clock to send to the Burgundians of a, as a gift and also a liar player to send to the Franks. He investigated allegations of corruption on the part of the captain of the king's bodyguard. The uprightness kept him in the good odor with the king, and he was named Magister Officiorum, but it made him few friends at court. Nobody likes the internal affairs guy. The combination of that unpopularity and a shift in international relations brought Boethius's career to an early, unpleasant end. The international stuff can wait, except to say that there was a new emperor in Constantinople, Justin I, and his relationship with Theodoric was less than ideal. At a royal council meeting in 523, a senator named Albinus was accused of writing to the emperor with treasonous intent. At this, Boethius rose to defend Albinus, saying, The charge is false, but if Albinus did that, then so have I, and so have I, and the whole senate with one accord done it. It is false. I think what he was going for was to say that if there was treasonous correspondent, it would have come from the whole Senate as a body, and since that is clearly ridiculous, then the charge against Albinus was nonsense. Maybe? But he could certainly have worded that better. 
and the same accusation was duly leveled against Boethius. Witnesses were produced against him, and Boethius was arrested and imprisoned. A short time later, his father-in-law was also arrested, and the two were accused of planning to overthrow the king. Was he guilty? It's very hard to say at this distance. I have no doubt that he was riding back and forth to Constantinople regularly, since he was deeply engaged in trying to heal the widening rifts between the Eastern and Western Church, and some of those letters could probably have been interpreted in a negative light if you were disposed against him. The incident doesn't appear in the Verrier, but the witnesses do, and are described as honorable men, though that may just be a matter of form. Most convincing to me, though, is Boethius' own words, written while imprisoned at a remote country house. It's not so much what he says, as the sense of hurt and injustice in the way he says it that convinces me that he didn't knowingly seek to do his king any harm. Maybe that's naive of me, and if it is, I can live with that. It didn't matter, though. After a few months in prison, Boethius was tortured and executed. Several versions of the execution are out there, hanging, beheading, or being beaten to death. He was around 44 years old, and it was a sad end to a promising man. But before he died, he produced his most famous work, On the Consolation of Philosophy, a dialogue between himself languishing in prison and the personification of philosophy, a woman of exceedingly venerable countenance. He complains about his situation, how unfair it is to be treated so, and how depressed he is, all of which is really fair enough. She comforts him, and their dialogue focuses heavily on the role of fortune in the life of mankind, as well as wrestling with the old, old, old question, how can evil exist if God is all-knowing and all-powerful? It's worth the read, honestly. Or a listen. There's a free version on LibriVox. It's relatively short for an audiobook. You can get through it in an afternoon. I recommend it. Several of the Consolation's themes would become important in medieval thought, and it was widely read and translated, including by Alfred the Great. Most interestingly, it makes no explicit reference to Christianity, though it does address the Creator. It's not explicitly pagan either. Boethius's philosophy is compatible with both Christian ethics and theology and their Neoplatonic counterparts. It prioritizes personal virtue and integrity as the greatest good, as it cannot be taken away. This blending of the classical tradition with the Christian would be the central pillar supporting medieval Christianity until the Renaissance. Now, I did subject you all to plenty of quotes from the Verrier, and what kind of podcaster would I be if I didn't do the same with the Consolation? So here we go then. Three quotes on the nature of fortune. One. You believe fortune to have changed towards you, but you are wrong. This was always her way, always her nature. Rather, in her very mutability, she has preserved her true constancy. Such was she when she loaded you with caresses, when she deluded you with the allurements of a false happiness. You have found out how changeful is the face of the blind goddess. She who still veils herself from others has revealed to you her whole character. If you like her, Take her as she is, and do not complain. If you abhor her perfidy, turn from her in disdain. Renounce her, for baneful are her delusions. And two, you have resigned yourself to this way of fortune. You must submit to your mistress's caprices. What, will you try to stay the swing of the revolving wheel? <laughs> oh, stupidest of mortals, if it stands still, 
it ceases to be the wheel of fortune. And number three. For truly I believe that ill fortune is of more use to men than good fortune. For good fortune, when she wears the guise of happiness, is always lying. Ill fortune is always truthful, since in changing she shows her inconstancy. The one deceives, the other teaches. The one enchains the minds of those who enjoy her favor by the semblance of delusive good. The other delivers them by the knowledge of the frail nature of happiness. End quote. These are all from book two of the six that are in the work. There's more, much more, and I'll be honest, that last book about the nature of free will is where he lost me. But this theme of the Rota Fortuna, Fortune's Wheel, will be pretty much ubiquitous in European culture going forward, and probably in our podcast going forward as well. Both Cassiodorus and Boethius can be seen as the last of something. They were products of a thorough classical education, and of the worldview of the Roman aristocrat. Literate, civic-minded, arrogant in a very specific way, which is qualitatively distinct from the arrogance of the later martial nobility. The attitude had survived transitions from republic to empire, survived the crises of the third century, survived and incorporated the conversion to Christianity. Older writers like to emphasize this. In the late 19th century, the historian Thomas Hodgkin described Cassiodorus as standing on the border between the Roman and the Teutonic worlds. Modern historians aren't as comfortable with hard lines like that, of course, but it's not hard to see Hodgkin's point. The world of the West was changing. It took 75 years after the supposed end of the Roman Empire for its death to become truly irreversible, but eventually it did. Cassiodorus lived to see it. Boethius was in a way a victim of it. The Roman way would remain as a guide and aspiration to the kingdoms that came after, but the world that could produce Cass and Bo was coming to a close. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you especially to Mark and Simon for donating through Kofi.com, my digital tip jar. If you would also like to support the show, you can do so at Kofi.com slash darkagespod. Find the link in the notes for today's episode. Thank you also to Neven, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, who left a comment on Podbean about binging the show, which makes me very, very happy. One last thing. Having previously quit Twitter, I have a new Twitter. Yeah, I know. But this one is mine, not the show's. I'm at Herbert underscore Bushman. I will talk about the show, of course, but also about other stuff. So, you know, join if you want. If not, not. Also, hi, everyone. My name's Herbert. Okay, I think that's everything. Come on back next time for Theodoric's Foreign Policy, in which I get to bring to the fore some new characters for our drama. Until then, take care. <laughs>